Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I am Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And if you've listened to the podcast, which I hope you have, you've heard me talk with people from Maine to Hawaii, Alaska to Florida. And uh, we've talked about every issue at every levels of government, basically, from uh, school board, which we're going to go back to today, um, to prothonotary, which we only did once, uh, state legislatures, and all the way up to U.S. Senate. And every office is important. There are 500,000 elected offices in this country, and many of them do not have an opponent in the general or the primary. People just kind of coast to re-election, or people have to be begged to run. And then when people complain about government not being good enough, it's because we don't have enough involvement with good people running. Also, something to keep in mind as we get into this podcast, um, there are 500,000 elected offices, like I said. 30% or so are held by women, but... In this country, the population is 51% women. And so that dichotomy, especially in state legislatures and other things, um, really affects you know the kind of representation we have in politics. So I'm going to be talking with a woman who lives not far from me. We've knocked doors together. Uh, she is more active in helping her community than most people in this world are. And so we're lucky to have her in office. She is Monica D'Antonio, and she is in the Norristown Area School District here in Montgomery County. And we're going to talk about what she's doing in Norristown and you know why you should pay attention to school boards. So Monica, thanks for talking today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Great. Um, now, I always ask everyone this question to start. You and I are active in politics. We've knocked doors. I remember meeting up in Norristown in 2020 um, and, and maybe before that. Actually, no, it's 2020 because like we had to like space out outside uh, to take stuff out because there was, there was a pandemic, uh, everything happening. But when did you first get involved to do more than just I'm going to vote on Election Day? Have you always been engaged or did something kind of propel you to do more than that? I've always been engaged politically. Um, since I was really young, my parents um, are liberal progressives. I was raised in a very progressive household. Um, my dad was very active, um, not necessarily running for office, but just more involved in the city. Um, for example, you know, when I was maybe three or four years old, he took me to a, an Amnesty International protest to protest the death penalty. Uh, you know, so I've been going to things like that since I was little. Um, I really did get into politics more forcefully, I would say, when I turned 18, and that was the Bush-Gore um, election. Um, at the time, I actually volunteered for Ralph Nader. Um, I lived in New Jersey, um, where it was very likely that Al Gore was going to win the state anyway, so I felt like I could kind mm -hmm. of direct my effort a candidate that was a little bit more aligned with my progressive values. Um, and of course, uh, neither candidate that I liked uh, was elect elected in that race. Um, but I've been pretty active then, mostly volunteering on campaigns. I've been a committee person since 2016, I wanna say. Um, and then my first official run for office was uh, for school board here in Narstown in 2019. And I'm now up for re-election in, in 2023. Now, um, we'll talk about school in a minute, but you and I both got involved at basically the same time. Like, I was engaged in the 2000 election. It was my first presidential election. I went to work on campaigns after that. So I feel like younger people today, people in their 20s who are just getting a game, they have very strong opinions, good for them. 
they don't realize that like politics didn't start getting crazy with Donald Trump, right? Like, do you think that, and you see teenagers, right, where they have strong opinions, which is great, but there's going to be a lack of appreciation for this isn't new. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not new. Maybe, maybe some of the tactics and, and tone and language and things like that are new. Right. Um, think about even, like, you know, on issues around guns and things like that. Like, it, there used to be, you know, in the 90s, like when we were coming up, there seemed to be more bipartisanship around, around these these issues. And now I feel like, you know, both sides have kind of gone to their corners um, and, and really are not working together. So, um, but yeah, I mean, politics is always going to politic. <laughs> I mean, right. it, it's always been this way. Um, what I feel like I'm hearing from young folks now, uh, because, you know, I work in the school district. I'm also a professor at Montgomery County Community College. So I'm with students all the time. I'm with young folks all the time. What I'm noticing is they don't want to be associated with a party. Mm. Um, they, they have their beliefs. They have their, you know, their positions on different things. They don't like the partisanship. They don't like the labels. They're very much a no labels, you know, kind of, kind of crowd. Um, and I feel like sometimes it's a little, like you have to talk to them about issues, not about people. Right. Um, they want to talk about safety in schools. They want to talk about women's reproductive health care. But the minute you bring up a candidate or a party, they kind of shut down. Um, so there's this kind of weird balance being an activist, an advocate, a member of the Democratic Party, um, where you're, you kind of show students that you're listening to their beliefs and their values, but you, you, you don't want to tell them how to vote or what party to kind of be a part of. Um, but it's kind of hard to, to sort of say that right now because the things they're telling me um, misaligned with one of our two major parties. So it's hard to kind of talk politics with them and not talk about parties and individuals. Yeah, and I feel like that's really unfortunate. I've had so many people tell me that over the years. Like, they don't want to get involved in our local party. Um, you know, why is this got to be partisan? We even had someone who wanted to get an endorsement because they thought they had to. They're like, oh, this position shouldn't be partisan. And I feel like the word politician gets such a bad rap, but that's the system we have, right? Like, if you want to go and form a third party and you're liberal, that doesn't mean you're going to win. Maybe you could in some other state cause for some reason. But generally, like, if you want to not have it be Democrat versus Republican, you have to radically change that system. You can't just kind of, like, inch your way forward and fold your arms and, and say, no, no, this isn't for me. Yeah, exact, exactly right. And I think there has to be, I'm constantly trying to figure this out and, 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 and figure out how to talk to young folks about this because you're right. Like you have to right now work within the system we have. Um, I'm not saying that the system's not broken in a lot of ways and needs to be revised and rethought. Um, and in power first to make that, right, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be at the table. Um, and if you're not kind of jumping in, and, and unfortunately what that means is kind of jumping in into a party. Because even if 
you know, there was a period of my life, I'll just give an example, when I was in my early 20s, where I said, you know what? Not my thing. I really want to be kind of a community activist. I want to be boots on the ground. But at the end of the day, everything comes back to politics. You still need to talk to legislators, and even as a grassroots activist, and say, I need you to vote this way, or I need this policy or this piece of legislation. Like, you, you just can't really exist in in one world without the other. And, and that's what I'm trying to kind of get young people to realize is I hear you on your issues. I see you out in our streets when we're fighting for black lives, when we're fighting for women's reproductive rights. I see you at all these protests, but this needs to translate into policy at some point. Mm. And you can't do that without a politician. You just, you can't. Right. So... It's like people – I see so many people on the left who love Bernie Sanders. And don't get me wrong. I Like I was – I liked watching him grill Howard Schultz from uh, Starbucks this week. That's great. And Bob Casey was excellent. If anyone gets a chance to see his uh, stuff where, where he gets really slept on as a great senator. But, um, but Bernie Sanders would not be a chairman of a party if Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema weren't also in that party. Like I'm not a big fan of all of their positions, but – the only reason that Bernie Sanders gets to grill Howard Schultz is because the Democrats have a majority in the Senate. Exactly right. And I mean, and I think sometimes it's, it's keep hearing or making the case to people like, well, we just need more Democrats, right? We just need more, you know, progressives or whatever to get involved. Um, I know people are so tired of hearing that, but that's, that's really the case that we're that we're in. You know, I mean, I'm looking even at our, you know, our school board races and the things that are happening here locally. And, you know, I, I gotta be honest, it's not democratic school boards that are banning books. Mm-hmm. It's not democratic school boards that are telling teachers to take pride flags out of their classroom or that you can't hang you know, an Eli Veal quote on the front of your library um, that tells people that are, you know, it's not okay to be a bystander. You have to, you have to say something. I mean, it's not Democrats that are doing those things. Um, Again, sometimes that's hard, especially with young folks to talk to them about, Um, especially when you're a teacher, you're in a position of power, right? Because Right now, I mean, the word of the day is indoctrination, right? So, you know, sometimes you're afraid as a teacher, you want students to think about ideas, right? And not about people or parties. Um, classroom, and I'm trying to be kind of neutral and just get them to think about things. But we have to be honest that this isn't both sides. Right. And sides in issue because there's not an equivalence here there's just not yeah so let's get back to school board i I just talked to dana foley from central bucks school district you're in norristown district um so you know you've been following central bucks that's part of the reason i reached out there or facebook friends you're talking about it and lots of other people have been too but what's the difference between a district like central bucks not just because of the political situation, we're just like the kind of difference between that kind of survey district and your district in norristown which is i can walk there Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, first I want to give a shout out to Dana because that was a fantastic interview. Um, I really enjoyed listening to her. She made me even read some of my um, (laughs) campaign strategies and and platforms. Um, So she did a really great job. Um, 
So some of the biggest differences, Central Bucks is a fairly wealthy community, I would say. Um, it's um, predominantly white. Mm-hmm. Um, Norristown is a community where, you know, 70% of the community lives below the poverty line. Um, you know, almost 40% of our community doesn't speak English as a first language. Um, our school district is predominantly black and brown. Um, almost all of our students qualify for free and reduced lunch. But the great thing about being in Norristown is we've been providing free breakfast and lunch well before it was cool. Uh, and before Governor Shapiro put it on the table, we've been doing it because that's what our community needs. In, in terms of the things that I guess like kind of anger, you know, uh, family or, or, you know, the issues of concern, let's say, we are not dealing with families showing up at our school board meetings, wanting to ban books and pride flags and um, things like that. We live in a super diverse community. So you're not really going to get um, culture war issues. Um, I think parents and families around Narsan really respect that we embrace diversity in our district. We purposely go out of our way to make our curriculum um, inclusive so that every child sees themselves in, in, the, in the work they're doing in school. Where I see parents really showing up for us is um, school safety. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have definitely had some issues restarting after the pandemic. Our district was closed a lot longer than, than several other districts in the area. Um, we had some trouble restarting last year and even into this year. Um, school climate has kind of been an issue. Um, students um, fighting. Um, we had a, a student who um, oh, and, and tried to harm himself. Um, so we, we have a lot of issues around mental health, um, dealing with social and emotional learning, dealing with emotions, conflict resolution, um, and those kind of school climate and safety issues. I would say that's a big concern for parents. And when they come to school board meetings, that's often a concern they express. And I would say this issue is had academic challenges in this district. Again, it's an underfunded school district. It's a um, it's a it's a school district, very large special ed population with a large English language learning population. So when you look at our state test scores, they're not great. Um, but we again have a lot of factors that impact how students are performing academically from, again, living in poverty, having very traumatic or difficult home lives. Like there's a lot of stuff that happens in our community that then gets brought into the school. Learning. Um, so of course, student, parents in our area are concerned about test scores and, and academics. Um, the good news for them is that coming out of the pandemic, use that opportunity to completely redo our curriculum, particularly around math, reading, language arts, and soon coming down the pike is going to be science. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of hard sometimes to ask families to be patient when new curriculum and new teachers are coming in that, that are just learning this new curriculum. Um, but we have already seen this year alone some very immediate gains, especially in literacy. Mm-hmm. And we're hoping that this new curriculum 
um, our new reading specialists that we've hired in every LMS school are going to start to to impact some of those numbers that were were troubling for our our community for such a long time. How much of that burden is on school boards like yourself, school board members, and the decisions you make? And how much of that burden is on the administration, principals, et cetera, um, and on teachers? Because when it comes to a student succeeding, everyone kind of places the blame on someone that's not themselves or gives the credit to themselves. But there are so many layers from the student themselves as a young person, which has too much pressure, uh, to parents, to the community at large, to school board members. How much of that responsibility and those decisions are on you? So... The way we kind of approach things in Narstown is that we think everyone has a responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it differs depending on the situation. I wouldn't say it's always equal across the board. You know, uh, there's sometimes when the board has to take more responsibility. Like if we, um, just as, as an example, um, we wanted some better um, no curriculum for English language learners up until this year, surprisingly we basically just translated English documents and gave them to English language learners and said, okay, here's, here's this lesson in Spanish. But there was no actual curriculum, mm -hmm. right, for, for English language learners, like an actual program that they could go through and kind of go through the steps of learning the language, master the language. Um, we have that now, but it took on, on the administration and it took um, you know, where sometimes the administration says, yes, yes, we're getting to that. We're getting to that. And you try to give them a little leeway at the beginning because, you know, turning a school district or any any aspect of a school district, like trying to turn around, you know, an aircraft carrier, mm -hmm. it takes time. Um, you know, you can't just make an immediate left turn, buying from your faculty, you need parents involved. It's, a, you know, it's a lengthy process to make any big change. But what we do as a board um, is keep up that pressure. We demand deadlines. Okay, you've said this is the, you know, this curriculum is, is rolling out or this new website is rolling out. We want a deadline, right? Mm -hmm. Or you said you've made these changes. What are the outcomes? Where's the date? We want to see that. So the way I kind of see it is we're kind of setting the goals um, what we want to see sort of writ large for the district. And we say to the administration, make us a plan that aligns with these goals that we want to see, and we are going to hold you accountable on those things. Now, where families and community come in, and this is where I'm really proud of us as a board and as a district, we want feedback from our community. So when we are picking a new textbook, for example, for next year's um, uh, ELA, English Language Arts Curriculum, we surveyed students and brought them into a focus group. We surveyed parents. We surveyed faculty. We let people look at the books and look through it to make informed decisions. Um, the board is, you know, it is um, informed of, of what the different textbooks option, options are. So community members, like if there's local nonprofits that run after school programs and they interact with our students frequently, we want them at the table because they see students in, in another way. Um, so we're very um, and cooperative with our community, with our staff, um, with our faculty, with our students. Um, it's not always a perfect system. I mean, not every voice always gets to the table. You know, when you ask people to fill out a survey, 
I mean, I, I have a PhD in, in educational psych and I do qualitative research for a living. Um, you, you get respondents who want to respond, right? right? They're already, they're already actively engaged. Um, so sometimes you have to figure that out. Right? Like you asked for the community's feedback, the feedback of the most involved people. So how do you balance that with folks who maybe are not as as vocal, right? How do you make sure they are heard? Um, and that's why we've started bringing in local nonprofits that work with families um, so that they can talk about what their, fa- like the families that profit with their experience. And so we try to bring in this array of voices so that everyone feels like they're at the table. Yeah, I think that from my experience as a parent, you know, the, the first stepping stone for a kid to succeed is having parents who are involved and are encouraging them and want them to do well. And, you know, I hate people who, like, just kind of say, look, the parent failed. Because if a kid's not doing well in school, there could be all kinds of reasons why a parent is it's a single parent, struggling with a double in, uh, income, injury, all sorts of things. Uh, not to make excuses or blame, but, like, it's hard to make a blanket thing. But so the parent people who are saying something are the involved parents already. Their kids may need help, but it's the other kids that probably need help in a greater level. Yeah, exactly. And and so it's it's incumbent on us, I think, as a board to make that happen, right? And make sure that some of those um, overshadowed voices um, are are included. So, for example, you know, in our community, like I said, we have a very large Spanish population. Um, we have a large undocumented population, which means some of our families are often afraid to show mm-hmm. up in school buildings, right? Um, they participate in certain parent activities because they need to do background checks and they don't want to send their information through the system, right, to get clearances. So it's like, well, how do we engage those families who are nervous about showing up at our school buildings, um, you know, a little mistrustful of anything that's kind of an American institution or a government institution, right? Which I don't blame them one bit. So what can we do? So for example, one thing I do is I have a monthly meeting with Spanish speaking families at an organization here in Narstown called Sacate, which is a bilingual after school program for kids, but there's also a lot of parent involvement there and parent activities. I meet with them once a month. Um, I, we have translators there, obviously, because it's a bilingual organization. And we, t- and there's usually 20 to 30 parents there. You know, they talk in their native language, so they feel comfortable. They don't have to fight through English. Um, we have translators, and we communicate. And then we create action groups based on different issues they're having. So if it's an issue around bullying, or um, there's a, a whole group of families that want more nutritious school lunches, so we kind of get into working groups and we create action plans for how to address the board and how to address the school district on these issues. Um, the other thing I'm doing, test, you know, this for folks that are on boards or, or, you know, are trying to get more involved in their community. I take classes at that same organization. So once a week, I'm taking Spanish classes in the evenings oh. and the kids are teaching me the young kids that go there after school. So they feel, and they feel like they have agents because they're teaching, you know, a 42 year old woman how to speak Spanish. 
Um, and they see, I want to be at this organization. I want to learn. I want to communicate with you and your families. Um, so this is something I want to spend my time doing. I want to be at this organization so that you see my face. You, We build trust. And we build relationships. That's how the work gets done. Mm -hmm. If folks don't trust you, if they don't feel like you want to actually be in a relationship with them, or if they only see you at election time, they write through you. You know, they're not going to want to, you know, come to your school board meetings or vote for you in an election or campaign for you. They want to see you're active all the time and that you're trying to engage all the time. So that's something... I feel like our board is really good at doing is showing up at events, meeting people where they are doing sort of office hours out and about in town and not just at board meetings. Um, that's our commitment to, to the community. That's what our job is. You know, and one thing I've heard from talking with some other people in the Norristown school district is, you know, it's unfair that Montgomery County is a very wealthy County. I am fortunate that my kids live very far away in terms of across a bridge. Like it's, and so we, they go to a school district that's very well funded. The high school is amazing that they're going to get to go to. Um, and so I was telling someone that, that goes to Norristown, they said, you know what? You don't know what our school is like. Cause why would I? It's not there. Um, and that I think a lot of people have strong opinions about schools don't have kids in schools. Um, and they don't see that like the schools of today, even Norristown that is less funded than my school district is much more advanced than school was when you and I were in school 30 years ago. Is that what you've seen is like just looking around that's, it's not the same schools as we might remember as kids or that parents might think of from when they were kids. I mean, when, when we were in school, I mean, and I, you know, what's interesting in, in my background is I, I was born and, and raised in South Philadelphia and my parents moved to New Jersey because they wanted a better school district. Mm -hmm. They didn't like being in the Philadelphia school district. But even when we moved, even being in a good, uh, quote unquote, good school district in New Jersey, you know, the things that even kids in Norristown have, even in an underfunded school district, no one cared about our emotional well-being. We didn't have social workers on on site in our in our school district. We didn't have you know smart classrooms and all of these different mechanisms for you know uh, like Google uh, Classroom and Schoology and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like you were either in class and you got the assignment or not. Like that was it. You know, no one was putting assignments up on the web. There was no web, right? So. Um, you know, things are so much different and, and socially things are different. You know, one thing I always, I talk about a lot, especially when I'm talking about talking to students and families is I was bullied badly as a kid. Right. And it was not a great, you know, it was not a great experience. Uh, and this again was a very wealthy middle class, or I would say middle class mm -hmm. school district in New Jersey. So like try to tell families bullying isn't just something that happens in Norristown. Um, kids thinking about suicide or actually trying, that's not unique to Norristown. This happened when I grew up in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. These are not things unique to Norristown. But what's different that I think adults need to kind of understand is when our school day ended in the 90s, that was the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's not the world we live in now. These kids are connected to each other and connected to their teachers and families 24 hours a day. 
Like my mom never would have thought of texting me during the school day to see how my day was going mm-hmm. or something like that. Not, that was not the case. So parents are different. Kids are different. The social environment is different and the schools are different. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you're someone like us that grew up in our time period, um, always get, you know, and I think about this when I think about the government talking about student loans and this and that, and I'm thinking, y'all are over 60. Like, you don't even know what student loans are. Right. You paid $5 for college. You know, you have no idea what debt these kids are sitting on and, and how that's debilitating lives. And I would say that to anybody running in local government as well. Like, you need and that your experience is not the experience that is happening right now. Yeah, I, I totally agree. But one thing that you said, and I think it's important, but I want to bring it up in like, a, I don't know, a, taking a devil's advocate type side here. So there's conservatives or some people call themselves independents who will say what you hear what you just said and said, you know what, Norristown would spend more on learning if they didn't spend so much on social feelings or socialization, like all that kids need to know is they go to school to learn science. I mean, math and reading. They don't even mention science sometimes because that's controversial too. But so what do, what do you say to critics who say like, look, these schools could be doing better, but they're investing so much into liberal claptrap that they're taking away from what the kids could be learning in that stuff. First of all, I would ask those folks to actually look at a school budget because mm-hmm. what's actually happening with our budget the things that we pay the most for aren't i initiatives or social emotional learning what we pay the most for in our budget the three biggest costs that which of course you need you need people we pay peasers which i don't know if, if folks know what that is but peasers is the retirement fund for retired teachers 30 percent of our budget paying that benefit to folks that don't even teach for us anymore. And trust me, I'm a union member. I support retirement benefits. I do not support, however, PEASERs mismanaging our money to the point that we owe millions of dollars every year Mm -hmm. because they are mismanaging funds. And if anybody wants to learn more about that, I would come in the direction of State Senator Katie Muth, um, who has taken PEASERs to task Um, on the way they've managed their money and that school districts because of this mismanagement of money have to pay more in retirement. The third largest cost is what we're paying for charter and cyber charter schools. Um, So what I would tell people is social emotional learning is drop in the bucket relative to the mandated cost that we are mandated to pay by the state, non-discretionary funding. Mm -hmm expenses, right? That has nothing to do with SEL, DEI, critical race theory, you know, none of that, right? Now, if you want to talk discretionary spending and what we spend on, you know, curriculum and all those those other things, the choices that we make, which is a very small percentage of our budget, we do think that social-emotional learning is a part of academic learning. Mm -hmm. And that if students are not healthy, mentally, physically, if they, if they struggle with managing emotions, if they struggle with anger, trauma, depression, anxiety, if they're constantly in fights with their classmates or their teachers, 
that is impacting learning full stop. The data supports this. And again, I would point any of those critics to look at actual research done by actual scholars and to listen to actual teachers who actually teach classes and to listen to students who actually take classes and listen to what their needs are and what they are saying. Because if you listen to teachers, if you read the research, and if you listen to students, you will see that these very um, personal issues, these emotional issues, social issues, home life issues are impacting their ability to learn and be successful in a classroom. You cannot separate these things. Yeah, my mom was a teacher for 30 years, teaching back in the 80s up until, I don't know, a few years ago. And it was a smaller school. But she, as she said, and you're basically saying, kids aren't going to learn if they're not ready to learn. And most of the, like, a half of the kids' education happens before they get into the school building. And so if, they, if they're too tired, if they're too, uh, if they're not, if they're hungry, if they're angry, well, they're not going to learn any math, whatever you put them, put in front of their face. And who wants to learn math, right? Like there's that joke online from a comedian. It's like, no one, no adult, every adult looks back and says, I never wanted to learn math. And like, if you already didn't want to learn and you're already stressed out, you're not going to do well on those state tests. Exactly right. And, you know, again, I want to circle back to something I said earlier. Relationships are the key, right, to building anything good, right? You need good relationships. And that means, in some cases, the schools need to take on that responsibility of helping students learn how to build relationships, right? One of the biggest complaints heard from parents about the lockdowns was that students weren't socializing and they weren't getting those relationship building skills. Mm -hmm. um, and it always fascinates me because the same people that were complaining about the lockdowns hurting our children, they wanted to reopen the schools, are also the same people, a lot of times, who complain about the social-emotional learning and the, you know, inclusivity and things like that. Well, but you're really making the same argument. You're mad at the lockdowns because the kids weren't getting socialization, which means you realize how important socialization is in a kid's life. All of a sudden, you want to cut out those programs, that curriculum, funding for those types of, um, for that type of learning. But you can't have it both ways, right? You can't say really hurt by not socializing with their peers. And then when we're trying to teach them socialization skills, you tell us that that's not, that has no intellectual merit. Like you can't have it both ways. Yeah. Uh, so I 100% agree. It's important for my, I mean, I see what my kids are doing in school, even at eight grades three and one. And you know, one of them will come home and just be upset because their best friend argued with them about something silly like soccer. But, you know, kids have kid emotions. Adults have adult emotions. But uh, so one yes. thing I, I wanted to ask you, uh, because this comes up a lot in the criticism of education. And again, mostly from people who don't understand or outside of it is if p kids are not performing well on tests, then it's probably because there's a bad teacher. And so we should we would improve schools by just getting rid of bad teachers. I, I mean, I think that's so hard to judge, but, like, what's your response to how to address that and to make people understand that, like, it's not just because – I mean, sometimes there might be a bad teacher, but it's not just because, like, that one teacher wasn't stepping up enough. Yes, absolutely. So one thing I do want to be very clear. Um, again, I'm, I'm a researcher. I'm a, I'm a teacher. High quality instruction is one of the most important factors in, in 
in determining a child's success, right? Mm-hmm. So they need a high quality teacher and they need high quality instructional materials. Those two things are very important in predicting future success for students. Right. Now, thinking about a number that comes off a state standardized test, right? Um, standardized test doesn't really have a correlation with uh, with teaching effectiveness. These are two totally different skill sets or th- and and assessment techniques, right? So, teacher and his or her or their teaching performance on a test that's not testing happening in a classroom, right? So you're testing apples and oranges here, like you're you're comparing apples and oranges. A test that asks a very specific set of questions and is testing very specific factual knowledge, an assessment of a teacher and a teacher's effectiveness. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was actually just talking with one of our honors students um, at our last school board meeting because we have school we have student reps on our school board. She is an honor student, AP classes, and. Loves the teachers in Narsan has had great instructional from the from the high school. That's the biology keystone. And she was so upset about this. She has to make it. And it's a whole thing. And I said, Well, what do you think was? Were you unprepared? Whatever. And she said, I just froze. Mm-hmm. And I like you know, knew the, I knew the material. I just I was struggling, right? Right in that moment to take that test. So when you think about the conditions around testing, right, that a kid may be, all the things you said earlier, they might be tired, they might be hungry, um, they're taking their SATs, maybe they're hungover even, I don't know, I mean, kids do a whole lot of things I didn't do when I was a kid, but the point is, taking this one moment in time, this one test, is, is one snapshot, it cannot be correlated with performance in a classroom. They're just not even the same worlds of mm-hmm. information. Yeah, I agree. I guess that's what I would say. No, I, yeah. I think that's, that's a point. And I think also, like, people, you have to see it. It's not, like, if there's a kid who, if all the kids are doing poorly in 10th grade math, but they're doing well in other things, well, then you can kind of point to that 10th grade math teacher and say, maybe there's something weird here because they're all, that's the one black hole. But if it's all sorts of things, and it's all sorts of things. Um, so I want to ask you, you talk about the importance of school board and being involved in it. Um, the average age of a school board member is in their late fifties, um, in this country. It's, uh, it's an unpaid position. It's not, um, it's not attractive to a lot of people. It takes a lot of time. Why would you encourage people to run for school board elections? Yeah. Well, and I do want to talk a little bit about the Norristown board because one thing I'm really proud of is that we have, um, several under 40. And in fact, our youngest board member just turned 21. She's actually, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the youngest elected official in all of the Commonwealth. Um, and she's a, a, a Narstown grad. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just finishing up at Temple now. So we do encourage young people here in our town, um, in our area to get involved. Um, but we need more of that. Absolutely right. I think, you know, in general, politicians skew old. And we all know why that is. It costs money. 
to run elections. You have to know a lot of people. Um, you have to be everywhere, right? So if you're someone who's working like three part-time jobs and you're 18 or 19 years old, you know, you can't be at so-and-so's fundraiser and meet all the big players, right? Um, you can't likely donate money to your mm-hmm. local party or whatever, right? So the things, and I think this is the problem with our parties in general is we often don't open the door to young folks. Like we just don't set them up for success, um, we saw this actually happen. I don't know if you were following the story in Philadelphia, um, in the council race and follow your favorite trash man on Twitter. He, you know, he's a young guy. He's a trash collector in Philadelphia. He was trying to run for council. Didn't really understand campaign finance. He was raised money and he quit his job so that he could run for council. So he was using some of his campaign funds to pay his rent and his car bill, and you can't do that. That's illegal, Mm. right? But this speaks to the issue of trying to be a young person, a poor person, um, who, you know, and those are the folks we want running for office. We want people who have real-life lived experience, not of the wealthy or well-connected, but of just average, everyday folks who can't quit their job to run for office, who can barely donate money, you know, they can barely pay their bills, like donate campaigns or parties or whatever it is. So what are we doing as a political system to encourage folks to run for office? What are we doing to make it less prohibitive? so essentially, you know, our board, what we really just try to do is be very supportive of folks that are running. So, you know, what if we have, you know, we have uh, three folks under on our on our board. What can we do to support you? Do mm-hmm. you need me to come over and watch your kids so that you can go out and knock doors and meet people? Uh, do you need money? I'll give you money. Like, Mm -hmm. I'll give you my money. Like, go out and spend it. Do you need to quit your job, right? Um, You need to be there as a a team to kind of to build people up and make it worth their while to run. And and frankly, I just don't think um, the parties right now are very good at encouraging. Well, they always encourage people to run. They always say it. But they're not doing anything to break the barriers that are the reasons people aren't running. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, to be blunt, like, let's say I was a county chair, not in any county. So much of that job is about raising not just tens of thousands of dollars in a county like Montgomery County, but hundreds of thousands of dollars and managing all these things. There's no incentive if that's your job to build the party to go attract people who aren't going to give you any money. And they might be flaky, not because they're bad people, but because they got other things to do. So you got to really entice them to stay involved. It's just the incentive structure is tough. And I think it's incumbent on us to fix it. Um, Monica, you're trying to fix all these things. And I want to – we, we talk about why people should run. We talk about education. Um, but I want to leave here today with if people want to get in touch with you, they want to learn more about Norristown School District, school funding, what's the best way they can reach out and learn more and uh, pick your brain? Absolutely. So I, um, I would love it if folks would email me. Um, I mean, you know, if you want our, I am up for a reelection and I'm running with a slate. Um, if you want to check out our Facebook page, 
It's Democrats for NASD School Board. Um, we will be posting um, information. We just kind of got that site up and running. We're going to be posting information, fundraising, um, bios of the dates and things like that. But for me personally, I always encourage folks to reach out, ask questions. I'm happy to meet with people virtually or in person. My email is monicadantonio15 at gmail.com. That's M-O-N-I-C-A-D-A-N-T-O-N-I-O-1-5 at gmail.com. I'm sorry my name is so obnoxiously long in Italian. Um, but, uh, Tony, I don't know if you do, like, show notes or anything on, on the pod, but I'm happy to send my email address if you put it. I don't know if you put it oh, in. Yeah, I'll put that on the, in the description so people can see. Um, it's important to get involved. I could talk to you for the next three hours, but my computer will die if I do that. I really appreciate what you have to offer. And I think school boards are so – they've always been important, more so – now more so than ever. The, the kid who's not yours that's in school, not yours, Monica, or mine, just like in general if you're listening, the kid that's not yours that's being taught, if they get a good education, that could be the kid, the adult that treats your cancer in the future. So you, we should all care about education. Thank you so much, Monica, for all you're doing, and I wish you the best of luck in Norristown, both for you and for the district. Thank you so much, Tony. I was happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And if you're listening, hopefully you're encouraged by Monica, and maybe you should consider running for office too.